Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church, located here in downtown Minneapolis at the corner of the Nicollet Mall and 12th Street. My name is Donald Meisel. I work here with a coterie of fine colleagues, and one of the things I enjoy most is moderating these forums seven or eight times a year. Today, as every time that we have met over the past eight years, the agenda is Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. The voice today is that of veteran news analyst and broadcast journalist Daniel Shore. And you have turned out here today in significant numbers. The, the, the sanctuary is packed to hear this gentleman. And the ethical issue has to do with the shape of this society as it is today and as it shall be come new leadership. Mr. Shore's career spans more than four decades, including 25 years as a foreign correspondent. He was the chief CBS News Watergate correspondent. He was awarded three Emmys for his coverage of that chapter in our political history. In the aftermath of Watergate, he covered the related investigation of CIA and FBI scandals. Mr. Shore joined Edward R. Murrow, CBS News team, as a diplomatic correspondent in 1953. In 1955, he went to Moscow to open the CBS bureau there. Many of us remember his historic Face the Nation interview in 1957 with Soviet chief Nikita Khrushchev in his Kremlin office. Mr. Shore has written for the Christian Science Monitor and the New York Times, being Regents Professor of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and authored Clearing the Air. He is currently Senior News Analyst for National Public Radio. Following nearly a half century of national and international reporting of the highest quality, who better to address the subject of choice for today, America after Ronald Reagan, the end of an era. Mr. Shore, we welcome you. Thank you, Don. That was uh, an over-generous, overly generous introduction, the kind of introduction that could only be responded to by a Henry Kissinger who knows how to handle things like that. I say this because I recall that back in 1974 when Kissinger was Secretary of State and we had then, as even today, a crisis in the Middle East and he, even as Secretary of State Schultz today, was conducting shuttle diplomacy in the Middle East, but with greater success. He had come home to Washington to a kind of hero's welcome, and there was a large-sized reception for him at the State Department, in the course of which a middle-aged woman walked up to him and took Kissinger's hand in her two hands and held it and looked him in the eye and said, Mr. Secretary, I simply wanted to thank you for saving the world. Right. <laughs> and he looked back at her, all right. I think my problem is I've got to get my, my, my microphone up higher. Up higher. Okay. Where are we? Should I put it on here? I think we need it maybe on. Is this any better? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to start that story again. <laughs> Woman walks up to Henry Kissinger at a reception of the State Department and says, I simply wanted to thank you for saving the world. He looks at her for just a second and says, you're welcome. <laughs> I 
I always think of that when somebody exaggerates just a little bit in praising me uh, before introducing me. Well, I come here today to quote from a famous man, there are many things that divide us, but the world breathes easier because we're talking together. I start with that because uh, I could start anywhere in trying to paint a picture of the Reagan era as I see it, which I think now is winding down and leading up to another kind of uh, era that will follow, some of which I will try later to suggest. But that's a good quote to start with, because it's a quote which is in many ways a metaphor for the short era that we are now beginning to see the end of the era of the Reagan revolution. I want to describe it in three ways. I have a, I, I've written a speech, but I've decided this audience looks too good for me to look down anywhere, so I think I would just rather just chat with you. And um, if I forget a couple of my major points, come back and say them some other time. Meanwhile, I think I would. All right. Could you hold that thing? Would that be a big problem just to no. hold it? If I just hold it like that, that does it, right? Hold it right up to my mouth. All right. That's what we'll do. I'm not going to start the speech over again. Don't worry. <laughs> what you've missed, ask your neighbor on the way out. There was one funny joke and a couple of uh, introductory remarks that don't matter very much, and now is when we really start. I think this phrase, this line of the president that uh, Larry Speaks says in his book, the president never said, is in many ways a metaphoric representation of what our whole era has been about in the past seven odd years. What we have here is not only that Larry Speaks presumed to put words into the president's mouth, but presumed to say that these were words that the president spoke to the leader of the other superpower, Mikhail Gorbachev. And what he also presumed was that the president would not mind that happening. The president said yesterday that it was all news to him. <laughs> I'm not sure what exactly was news to the president. Was it the first time that he heard the quotation? Did he not know at the time that on television, on newspapers, or radio everywhere, he was being quoted as having said that to Mr. Gorbachev? Was it news to him? Did he perhaps think he had said it? and that he didn't remember it. I, may, I make these points not in order to make fun of a president who is in many ways a very revered and certainly very popular figure in this country, a president who's made America feel very good about itself, which is itself is a considerable accomplishment, who has made you feel that you're standing tall because he told you you were, and that it was morning in America even if you saw midnight. To be able to be able to do that is a considerable accomplishment. What I want to talk to you about today is where does the accomplishment lead, what it leaves us with in the way of problems, and what therefore is likely to follow. When you think, for example, about the whole Iran-Contra affair, a very complicated matter, it was in essence the same phenomenon as the phenomenon of going out to a crowded news conference of 2,000 people in Geneva in 1985, and I was there when it happened, and saying, well, the president said to Gorbachev, so on and so forth. And incidentally, at that briefing uh, in October 85 in, in Geneva, at that briefing, Larry Speaks said it, and then as usually happens, somebody said, I didn't get it, will you repeat it? And he repeated it five or six times, and finally someone got up and said, and how did Gorbachev respond to the president when he said that? And Larry Speaks said, um, he, the response was in Russian and I didn't follow it. <laughs> in other words, you start to tell one lie and you're then drawn into telling other lies in order to protect your first lie. But I'm not interested in Larry Speaks, who is really a very insignificant figure. Larry Speaks describes himself in his book, 
as which I'm now reading to write a review, describes himself in his book as a hired gun, a hired gun for presidents. Yes, maybe a hired gun, but I don't think a hired gun should turn the gun and point it at the man who hired him. which is in essence what Larry Speaks has done with the various other uncomplimentary remarks about others who were in the White House, including um, Nancy Reagan. But never mind Larry Speaks. He's not important. President is important. And you've gotten a glimpse of the president's method of operation, his whole style, from the fact that he does not mind or not, doesn't know when people put words into his mouth, and not only words into his mouth, but words that he was supposed to have spoken on the occasion of a very important summit meeting. When you think back to the Iran-Contra affair, and it's funny to think of thinking back to it when the trials resulting from it have not yet happened, and yet we think of it as something last year, the year before, ancient history, which is one of the characteristics of our television age where things happen so fast that last year's sensation is like a piece of history of 20 years ago. And when you think back to it though, what was the essence of the Iran-Contra affair? The essence of it was we had a president who had simple ideas about he wanted to have happen, but did not want to be involved in the details of having how to have it made happen. And so undoubtedly at some point, the president let it be known that he wanted to have his freedom fighters, the Contras of Nicaragua, kept alive, and he didn't care how. And at some other point, he expressed concern about the fact that nothing was happening about the hostages who were being held in Lebanon. The president's concern, if you read the records of what was happening in those days was not expressed so much in terms of compassionate feeling for them as it was expressed in terms of how am I going to get Peggy Say off my back? Peggy Say being the sister of Terry Anderson, a hostage in Beirut. Peggy Say being a woman who was articulate enough to go on television very often and say that the president and the administration were not doing enough to try to get the hostages out. The president understands enough about the impact of television to realize that this was not doing him a lot of good. So his reaction was to the public relations of the situation. When the president says, I want you guys to do something to get the hostages out, he's given two orders, or more correctly expressed, two wishes. One is keep the Contras alive. Congress says don't keep them alive, but I want them to be kept alive anyway and don't bother me with details. Second is, do something about the hostages, and don't bother me with details. And from those two simple wishes, interpreted by people who had grown accustomed by that time to understanding what the president's general ideas were, but not bothering him with specific plans, there arose this whole plan to illegally supply the Contras, in part with money raised by panhandling with rich Americans and with rich countries one to five around the world and siphoning off some of the money from sale of arms to Iran, which was supposed to get hostages out, and siphoning off some of that money to supply in the countries and the rest of it going into something that was called the enterprise, that is, meant to line the pockets of arms merchants. Did the president know about all this? Clearly he didn't. Why should he? He doesn't know all about most of the things that he has set in motion. That is both a defense of the president and an indictment of the president. That to be president and well-meaning and set vague guidelines for people to carry out in some other kind of way is not enough in the present age. And when the era of Reagan has come to a close, we may not go back to the era of Carter, who busied himself perhaps too much with details to a point where he couldn't see the forest for the trees. But somewhere between a Reagan and a Carter, 
there is great need for a president who not only expresses the mood that he would like to see in America, not only expresses the general lines of what he'd like to see have happen, but will take responsibility for the way it's implemented by aides of his. People have asked me many times, do I believe it conceivable that Admiral Poindexter decided on this plan to divert money from arms sales to the Contras and decided, as he put it, that the buck stopped there and that he wouldn't tell the president about it. Was that conceivable? Would an admiral, a Navy admiral, not tell his commander-in-chief? And the answer is, with this commander-in-chief, quite conceivable. I uh, have become rather friendly with one of the figures in the Iran-Contra affair, Robert Bud McFarlane, the former National Security Director who has pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor count and now will be a star witness against the four people if and when they come up for trial under the indictments that have been handed up. And becoming friendly with McFarlane, finding him an interesting and rather complicated man, at one point I said, try to make me understand how much did the president know from day to day as you were doing these things? I mean, I understand that uh, the president says he didn't know about this, didn't know about that, but what did he know? And McFarlane said, that's not an easy question to answer. What I can tell you is that over a period of a year and a half, we had a regular daily 9.30 national security briefing. I went in to tell the president what was going on. It lasted a half hour. If something had happened that day about contra supply or a plane shot down or arms having gone to Iran, tow missiles, Hawk missiles, it was all part of that briefing. But usually when the briefing came to an end, he had no questions to ask me about what I had told him. And most often, went off into an unrelated matter, sometimes saying, hey, Bud, have you, I have a new joke to tell you, and would simply end the session by telling me some story. And McFarlane said that in the end, he was appalled to look back and realize that while he had told the president everything, he could not rightly say what the president had absorbed or listened to or heard. That is also a characteristic of the Reagan era. Now, when you have a president who manages to establish a kind of a moral leadership or a generalized spiritual leadership and have the country willing to dream with him the dream that he is dreaming for America, you find yourself subscribing to policies which may not always apply themselves very concretely to the real problems of America at any given moment. Let me sort of make that concrete in terms of foreign policy. The president came into office imbued with one great general idea about the world. That the world was basically divided into the evil empire centered in Moscow, and the free world, the good guys, us. In between the evil empire and the wonderful empire, the New Jerusalem, lies a group of people in the third world for whose freedom we are fighting. And therefore, in any place where there are people fighting against a communist regime, we support freedom fighters. That will give you a pretty good description of the president's philosophy. And if he can define the world that way, the policies that would flow from it would be based on the president's general speeches about evil empire, freedom fighters in the middle, and we leaders of the free world. Here are some of the consequences of that. The president supported freedom fighters in Afghanistan with Stinger missiles. That worked pretty well. The Russians are going to get out of Afghanistan. In the end, 
It looked for a while as though the administration was even slowing down their withdrawal by adding new conditions to their withdrawal that Secretary Schultz had not raised before, leading the Russians at some point to ask the question, won't you take yes for an answer? But in the end, the agreement was reached, it was signed, the Russians are getting out. Not under ideal conditions, because while the Russians are getting out, They've done nothing about trying to end the civil war in Afghanistan. And both the Russians and the United States have been pumping in oceans of supplies to their sides so that once the Russians are out, there will be no Russian occupation, but there will be war. What we have in effect succeeded now in doing is what President Nixon started doing in Vietnam, which was to withdraw American troops and to Vietnamize, as he put it, the Vietnam War. We're now going to Afghanize the war in Afghanistan, but that war will not end. And the chances are that the war will end in Afghanistan for Russia as it ended for us in Vietnam, a fairly cynical withdrawal at a point where we could no longer sustain the idea of pouring out blood and treasure for the sake of an ideological commitment, and so we cut our losses and got out knowing full well, as Kissinger knew, as President Nixon and Ford knew, that the South Vietnamese government would probably not stand. Gorbachev knows that his puppet government in Kabul, Afghanistan, probably would not stand. But he's had it. The Soviet people will not stand for any more of it. And although he does not have to be as sensitive to public opinion as our president does, he knows when the time has come to quit. So much for Afghanistan. But Nicaragua is an interesting case because it's an interesting case of what happens when a foreign policy gets distorted to meet the needs of a rather simplistic ideology. All these seven years, President Reagan's whole policy in Central America has been to try to bring down the Marxist Sandinista regime. In pursuance of that policy, They've turned Honduras into a kind of a loading platform for supplies to the Contras, pushing the little Honduran government around to a point where now today we are paying a price in that little Honduras, that once little banana republic run by United Fruit Company, is now up in arms at the latest country to join the ranks of anti-American against the colossus of the North, the gringos little Honduras. We pushed them around a little too much and we managed to develop an anti-American feeling which burst into flames in an assault on our embassy a few weeks ago. But worse, but worse, in pursuit of trying to do everything we could to defeat the Contras, defeat the Sandinistas and help the Contras, we also took to our bosom General Noriega in Panama. Our government has long known that Noriega was a kingpin of drug traffic. But CIA Director Bill Casey put him on the CIA payroll and Casey would go down to Panama City and talk to him. And Noriega would come up to Washington and have conferences with Bill Casey about how to supply the Contras and how to provide intelligence about the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Noriega got the clear impression that while the Drug Enforcement Administration didn't like him, the Reagan administration did. He got mixed signals. There is a record recently produced about a memorandum that was written after a meeting between Casey and Noriega in which Casey said that he knew he was supposed to raise with Noriega the drug problem but decided it would not be convenient to do so. What is the result of what we see today in Central America? There is possibly, conceivably in the future, a problem of having a Marxist-Leninist-Sandinista regime there. Could be a problem. 
There is, however, a much more immediate problem of drugs. Have we had our eye on the wrong ball? Has it been a mistake to make an ally of a drug lord because somebody thought that the main problem in Latin America was a problem of Nicaragua? Was that a mistake that flowed from an overly simple view of what the world is made up, how it's made up today? Should somebody have said, listen, we don't like the Sandinistas, but surely Noriega is a more immediate threat to our country and crime and the growth of what now looks like a vast drug empire which can corrupt and even own governments. That realization has come now, but late. Maybe not too late, but late. And I don't know who the next president will be. But I do know that when the Reagan era is over, there will be a less simplistic look at the world as divided into red and white. And somebody is going to say that the main problems of today are not problems that were made by Marx or Lenin or Stalin. They are made by other forces not created by either the free world or the evil empire. There's another way in which there has been a, a misperception. You look around you and you say, what are the chief problems outside drugs that afflict us today, really afflict us on a day-to-day -day basis? You turn on the news and what do, you see, what do you see? You see that there's been another terrorist incident. There is a, there are a, a, a band of terrorists have hijacked a Kuwaiti airliner. It now becomes clear that the terrorists were resupplied and reinforced when they landed in Iran. It seems most probable that there is a, an Iranian hand in this whole thing. Why? Because they want freedom for 17 terrorists in Kuwait who are in jail having been convicted of having bombed the French and the American embassy in Kuwait. And their blood brothers in Lebanon and elsewhere are carrying out terroristic acts to get these people free. What makes them think that little Kuwait, which refuses to budge on this thing, would let them go? Do you remember that it was only two years ago that Albert Hakim, who suddenly became the American Secretary of State, was meeting with Iranian agents in Germany and working out a plan for them which included that the United States would use its best efforts to try to get freedom for these 17 prisoners in Kuwait. What made them think that they could do that was that we had performed in a manner so erratic and so irresolute that Iran, among other countries, no longer is quite sure what America stands for in the world. But in the course of that, we were also telling the Iranians that they were threatened by the Soviet Union. And we were trying to repair our Mendar offenses with Iran because the Reagan administration said maybe we can get them to be on our side in the war between the East and the West. When President Reagan came into office, he came in with the idea, he didn't talk about it much, but he did talk about it sometimes when he was with evangelical Christians. He came in with an idea which he absorbed from some of the evangelicals, that there was a prophecy of Armageddon in the Bible which would be translated as a new modern Armageddon, a final nuclear war between America and the Soviet Union that would start somewhere in the Middle East, maybe at Armageddon, and would end with the return of Christ. And having believed that for many years, uh, President Reagan was clearly not a big advocate of arms control 
Because how can you control nuclear arms if we're headed towards that inevitable, preordained, final war with the Soviet Union? But he changed. Somewhere he changed. It is hard to mark when and where he changed. I suspect it was sort of after his first term. I suspect that it was largely under the influence of the First Lady, Nancy Reagan, who began to think that the President should adopt a more conciliatory attitude and begin to think in terms of ending his tenure in office with something better than preparation for war against the Soviet Union. And slowly, one began to realize that the President was turning into a born-again arms controller. And somewhere, Banner realized that when he talked about wanting an agreement, that he suddenly began to really want an agreement. And out of that came the thing he's now so proud of, the so-called INF Medium Range Weapons Agreement, which he says is the first time in history that we have managed to abolish a whole class of nuclear weapons. True. It's abolished these intermediate range weapons, or they will be abolished if the treaty is ratified, as I suspect that it will be. Fact of the matter, the fact of the matter is that uh, it doesn't really change the nuclear equation very much. There are still enough weapons of all kinds, nuclear weapons, that the threat remains. But the question really is the recognition that in spite of the fact that both these two superpowers have enough weapons to wipe each other out, I don't know how many times over, you can mention your own figure 10, 20, 100 times, tends to become meaningless after a while, we're now beginning to realize that it is not likely to happen. Not likely to happen because uh, here are these two countries in a great stalemate. They're deterred by each other's nuclear weapons. They realize that nuclear weapons can't be used. The nuclear weapons, God willing, will never be used against each other. And yet we act as though the confrontation between these two superpowers is what's happening in the world. No, what's happening in the world is terrorism. Not Soviet terrorism. Not American terrorism. Terrorism arising from ethnic clashes, fundamentalist religious groups. People have decided that they want, they're going to save the world their way be they Iranian Shiites, or be they in the Soviet Union, Armenians, Azerbaijanis, and so on, the world is crumbling into tribal and ethnic and religious warfare, going back to some kind of a pre-civilized era. Which means that the real threat does not come from the America or the Soviet Union or their relations with each other, but that we are all threatened by forces outside. The next nuclear threat that's likely to happen, most likely to happen, will be a Pakistani nuclear bomb, which they apparently have. Or if a war breaks out between Israel and her neighbors that goes too far and Israel feels threatened, an Israeli nuclear bomb. There are places where nuclear bombs may go off and none of them is likely to be an American one or a Soviet one. But even before we get into the nuclear terror, there are plenty of other kinds of conventional terror for us to worry about. And all you have to do is take a look every day at the pictures of that plane sitting at the airport in Algeria to realize the latest example of that. What will the next president have to consider? So mind-blowing things that this president has begun to set the stage for, but can't quite really come to terms with himself. The world is a dangerous place, and the dangers are not made by the great powers. Indeed, the world is becoming such a dangerous place that these great powers, so long in rivalry with each other, Cold War, almost hot war, cold war, detente, cold war, will have to be considered whether conducting cold wars between us is a luxury that we can afford anymore. It works well in elections. 
It works well to go up and say, you know, are you soft on the Reds? Are you tough on the Reds? It works well to say you want a big defense budget or you want to leave us at the mercy of our enemies over there. It works well. But the fact of the matter is the real problems that our next president will face will be how do we end the war between Iran and Iraq, for example. Every now and then, Secretary Schultz will sit down with Foreign Minister Shevardnadze and say, neither you nor we have anything to gain from the war in the Persian Gulf. So don't you think we ought to get together to try to contain that war and, if possible, end it? And they do talk that way, but then in the end, other forces intervene, and then we get worried about the Russians, and the Russians, we say the Russians are sending their ships into the Persian Gulf in order to upstage us with Kuwait and so on, and we keep going back to that old syndrome of if the Russians are doing it, it must be against us, and if we do it, it'll have to be against the Russians. It's going to take some time to realize that the Soviet-American relationship is not a zero-sum game in which we win, they lose, they win, we lose. It may be we lose, they lose. Maybe we win, they also win. Mind-blowing. But it's what the next president will have to think about. All these years, for example, the Soviets have stood on the outskirts of the conflict between Israel and her neighbors. And during all those years, we wanted to keep the Russians out. Now the Russians are putting pressure on the PLO to recognize Israel. Good. Maybe in the end we'll have to have the Russians in in order to help. Something for our next president to begin to think about after the era of Reagan. And at home, at home, what did our president do? He was enormously successful in carrying out a tax reform. A tax reform which in some ways involved a redistribution of income in this country. Made it a little bit tougher at the lower end of the middle class and a little bit easier for people in corporations and people who are rich. But most of all what he did was to manage to pile up an enormous deficit, which David Stockman, his former budget director, has written, was an almost deliberately produced deficit. Because the result of that deficit is, no matter what you want to talk about in the way of what domestic programs are going to be cut, what nobody in politics dares to talk about are programs which should be increased or introduced. In that way, our president has succeeded in dominating the agenda for I don't know how many years to come. It is not safe to talk about new programs because we have a huge deficit. We have a huge deficit because the president told us that he could cut taxes by 30 percent and increase our military spending by 200 percent and we would still come out better because the productive power of America would be unleashed and we would get more revenues from lower tax rates. It hasn't worked out. What has worked out is that he has managed to limit the growth of government, which was also one of his aims, to a point where the government today sort of is on hold. It coasts along. It does the things it has done before. It has not, it's not cutting out things which should be cut. It's not producing new programs. It's not addressing problems of the elderly as it should. It is not addressing problems certainly of the poor as it should. But you know, we live in an with an administration that has not fully come to terms with these things. Practice a process of denial. There was an Ed Meese who had said at one point that people only get on food lines because the food is free. Didn't believe that anybody was in need of food in America today. Well, he doesn't say that anymore. And America is beginning to understand that when there are unresolved problems in this country, the more difficult to resolve because we have both a very high budget deficit and a very high trade deficit. Our new president will have to think in different terms. May have to think in terms of going back, not necessarily to a bigger government again, but a government which is able once again to say that the government is a place of last resort for those who have no other place to go to. 
that not everything is resolved by free market forces. That at some point the government must step in. The government may have to re-regulate. The great rage for deregulation has not given us a paradise in telephone systems or on the airlines or on television. If you wonder why it is that news is more glitzy on television today, why you don't get the old style documentaries, it is because the FCC has said, don't worry about performing in the public interest. Just do what you have to do in the market. That information and entertainment is another commodity on the market. That may not last. There may be another look at have, as to whether things have become too slack and too easy and whether there are some things that have to be taken in hand. But most of all, we're going to have to go back to thinking in terms of a government that is hands-on, a government that governs, and a president who watches what the government is doing, and who finds that some of the detail of administering a great country may be boring, may not be inspirational. And mo one more point I want to make. I don't want to run over, I want to leave time for you. But I want to make just one more point. This president has been the most successful, inspirational president of this century. And he inspires because he grew up with television and he understands television. This is a president who radiates charisma. Charisma is a great and wonderful and useful quality to have to weld a nation together to get something done, if you then proceed to get something done. <laughs> but charisma alone is dangerous. And we are living in an age where we have people who understand our media. We have them in the religious field, we have the charismatics, and we have them in politics. We have people who invent themselves in order to be what they think television wants them to be. And there has to be an awakening from the sense that all of governing of America and the process of election is a kind of a spectator sport in which, as we have seen, the number of people turning out to vote steadily goes down. And people who don't vote stay home to watch what people who do vote do. <laughs> Waiting for the next upsets, surprises, coming from behind. If you think that it's an accident, I'm using words borrowed from sports, it is not an accident. Because I think, because we see it all on television, we have managed to turn our whole political process into a spectator sport in which we are more interested in upsets and surprises and dramatic things than in the process of governing, which may be why each primary seems to produce some new result. And every person who was a front runner seems to be lagging behind by the time of the next election. And we keep producing every month a new person to look at and say, hey, maybe he, maybe this one, and maybe that one. It's all a product of charismatic politics. We're reaching the end. I hope, of this era where America looks open-mouthed and agape and says, I like what he says. He makes me feel good. I think we will come soon to the next age as we awaken slowly from this rather pleasant dream and see the reality around us and say, Next time round, I'm going to check. He's going to have to do good because there is an awful lot of good that still needs to be done. Thank you.
Shore, you described American life uh, before the program and in part moments ago as uh, spectator sport. Forty-five minutes with you thus far has been anything but, beginning with your putting aside your prepared text and given the animation and engagement that I've sensed uh, in this live audience and I'm sure on the radio as well. Let me just take a moment while those who uh, must leave do so to remind the radio audience that they are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis and that our speaker has been and is Daniel Shore, veteran news analyst and commentator, speaking about America after Ronald Reagan, the end of an era. Uh, People in the radio audience do have the privilege of phoning in questions. We're not going to have a lot of time for the questions today, but even those that aren't responded to uh, live or over the air will be given to our speaker and will have their, their effect in, in that sense. But we're going to get to those that we can. And the uh, telephone number here at Westminster for those who do choose to phone in, 332-3421. 332-3421. Let it be known that Mr. Shore is in town these several days, not only as our town hall forum speaker, but also as a feature voice in a conference being sponsored by United Theological Seminary in New Brighton, just north of the Twin Cities, the theme of which is media, ethics in a global community. I wonder, sir, if you would return to the podium, and I think you're holding that the lavalier has worked best for our time together. I apologize for the overly long speech. I got carried away. <laughs> <laughs> we have just observed the 20th anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King. I wonder if you'd be willing to uh, say, uh, share some of your experience uh, of that leader and some of your thoughts about him. Right, I'm going to try to make these answers as short as I can yes. and allow as much time as possible for questions. And I'll tell you that mentioning Martin Luther King brings back one thing to mind. In 1968, Dr. King came to Washington to have a press conference and announce a Poor People's March on Washington, which he announced but did not live to lead. And at that press conference, I was one of the several reporters, I being then CBS, who plagued him with a lot of questions about how militant he planned to be and whether he'd blocked the bridges and all the rest of it. And he kept trying to insist it was going to be nonviolent. And when the press conference was over, uh, I went up to talk to him, and he said to me, you know, I want to tell you about what television is doing to the Civil Rights Revolution. Uh, we try to practice nonviolence. You try to bait us into saying militant things. The result is that what gets on television are the more militant black leaders. And you are selecting militants as black leaders. You will find out that if you want violence, you are going to get violence, and it's because you're doing that. That was one memory I have dating back to 1968, which every now and then gives me a small twinge of conscience. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Question from the floor. Are you more trustful about living with the Soviets, in quotes, as a result of your time in the USSR? Do you believe peaceful coexistence is possible? Uh, not, well, I, I did spend a couple of years there. I must tell you, when I left the Soviet Union, I thought that certainly for me, peaceful coexistence with the Soviets would not be possible. It's not an ex two and a half years as a correspondent in those days was nothing I'd want to repeat. My conviction about coexistence being possible comes from my conviction that coexistence is, an, is a simple necessity, an inevitable necessity in this world. That if reasonable people sit and look at what their problems are and say, the Russians didn't make this problem for me, and the Russians say, not only did America not make this problem for me, but more what Gorbachev is saying, I need America to help solve my problems. And then you say, how do we sit on these Iranian terrorists? How do we sit on Lebanese terrorists? How do we stop these people from doing this? Then in the end, coexistence simply becomes a reasonable answer to a problem which poses itself today in terms different from the way problems posed themselves in the past. Thank you. Question from the floor. What do you think of the Dan Rather George Bush incident? 
couldn't have happened to two better people. <laughs> I, thought, I thought the Dan Rather, George Bush thing was a typical media event, uh, almost predictable, that if you try to get somebody who wants to look like a hard-hitting reporter asking somebody who wants to avoid hard-hitting answers on a certain subject and put it live on the evening news with a big time pressure on it, there's going to be a small explosion, and there was. <laughs> Another question from the floor. Do any of the candidates for president fit the presidential style that you view as essential to the next administration? No, I, I, I don't campaign, and I am, <laughs> I'm really, I am really nonpartisan. And the whole point of what I'm trying to tell you is that if you put not your trust in politicians, don't put your trust in journalists either. Nobody has an ultimate answer for you. In the end, it's not going to be, tell me what I must do. In the end, you're going to have to look at the guy, woman, figure it out all for yourself. And I, I don't do endorsements. Don't do endorsements. I don't do predictions. I'm always being asked also for predictions, and I have one that I now give. And that prediction is that uh, the Democrats will not succeed in nominating anybody that uh, George Bush will be nominated by acclamation, run unopposed, and lose. Another question from the floor. Why aren't the media and the public expressing their outrage over the proved connection between the drug trade and aid to the Contras, as revealed in congressional hearings? Well, because it's been denied and it's a little bit uh, shadowy about how much of it is true. I wasn't talking about the connection between, between uh, 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 the, uh, there is now an investigation going on as to whether pilots who were supplying the Contras themselves were involved in drug traffic, and there appears to be some truth to that. I'm talking about the bigger picture of people like the strong man of Panama and colonels in Honduras who were simultaneously acting as kingpins in drug traffic and felt they had immunity because they thought they were needed for our fight against the Contras. The other as to the Contra thing is it's under investigation. What will be learned about it will come out. You can rest assured that today these things are not going to stay secret forever. Question. Have Americans become too sedated with the easy life that we're becoming too lazy mentally to grapple with tough challenges? Well, I have a, a great uh, a general optimism about America which makes it possible for me to go on living. And that is that Americans in short periods uh, will go astray somewhere, but that there's an inner strength and that there's a self-corrective device that eventually asserts itself. I think that America is not only a little soft from easy living, but for a lot of people, living isn't all that easy. But more than that, I think America has been sedated by being passive observers of the scene on television. I have a terrible worry about what television, in the end, does to people as they sit there not being obliged to act, accepting images that come across on the screen and thinking that that is a substitute for reality. I think that people should assess not only easy living, but their television watching. Is ca America still capable of electing a leader as its president? Well, America will simply have to become capable once again of finding leadership, because the fact of the matter is we've come a long way in these 30 years of television in which we really, without noticing it, have selected out the kind of people, many of them, who could be our leaders. Television selects out anybody who stutters or stammers or takes longer than 45 seconds to express a complicated thought or anybody who happens to have an idea which may be momentarily unpopular. We are no longer capable of having a Churchill who for 15 or 20 years talked about having to arm against Hitler and was not popular until one day it was time to bring Churchill in when they realized that Churchill was what they needed. Today's politicians will not sit there with unpopular thoughts. They will ask a consultant 
What should they say to, to say the popular thing? The result is we have almost selected a generation of leaders who are not the kind of original people we used to have. We'll have to go back and reject a lot of people today to begin to bring back those people whom we can listen to even if we don't agree with everything they say. Perhaps this question bears on what you've just said. Can the arms and drug dealers who have been manipulating international affairs, the shadow government, for the last 30 years be controlled by any administration? It's, I must say, it is very difficult. I mean, you, wherever we have found, for example, with these billions of dollars that they have, that they are able not only to corrupt the Panamanian government or to wipe out the whole judiciary of Colombia, all of that, but we have found an increasing problem in this country. The amounts of money are so tempting that we keep running into increasing corruption among our law and order forces. And that becomes an increasing problem. And uh, you, we're going to have several scandals of corruption, police corruption and drug enforcement, all the rest, simply because the vast amounts of money so well organized are almost impossible to resist. But I think, yes, I think at some point, you know, there comes a big revulsion against all of this. I've seen that happen in my 50 odd years of journalism, just at the point where I thought things had sunk to a point where there was no way out. Americans just sort of rise up in a kind of revulsion against it and clean house a little bit. That's going to have to happen too. Would you comment a, a bit about fantasy and reality as you see that uh, unfolding in our society? Yeah, that's going to be a book I'm going to write someday. <laughs> uh, when I was young, we used to go to the movies now and then, and we'd uh, walk to the movies and put down our quarter and, uh, uh, and indulge in fantasy for two and a half hours and then come out and join the world of reality again. And we could distinguish between what was real and what was fantasy, and we enjoyed fantasy. But then after 30 years of fantasy being on the tube right in your living room and every other room, to a point where it becomes a constant attendant, where on the same tube you will see entertainment, news, news which borrows some of the tools of entertainment to make itself more interesting, docudramas which pretend to recreate history, change history and all the rest, your mind in the wild gets scrambled as to what is real and what is not real. And I find constant evidences among people that I talk to, when I talk to about television, they're not sure whether they saw something on the news or in an entertainment show because the difference has become blurred. Now the result of this is, a, a, the best example of it is the president himself. The president, <laughs> president has said, for example, president said, for example, that uh, in an interview the other day, asked about Gorbachev, that Gorbachev was different from the other Soviet leaders he had known. That was odd, because he's never known any other Soviet leader. Right? <laughs> but he had seen them in motion pictures, and that's kind of like the same thing. Or he had talked at one time about the horror he witnessed at the end of World War II in liberating concentration camps. He never liberated a concentration camp. He never was in Europe at the end of World War II. He was in Hollywood, however, helping to edit a film about the liberation of the concentration camps. Or, not to make this answer too long, the famous story that he loves to tell about the Congressional Medal of Honor being given posthumously to a brave tail gunner who went down with his plane from which he could have escaped because his buddy, the pilot, was on the plane. There isn't any such Congressional Medal of Honor. There was, however, a picture in the 1940s in which Ronnie Reagan acted where something like that happened. <laughs> now, he is an example of what happens when fantasy and reality blur to a point where there isn't any difference anymore, and he is an example that we should all learn from. Mr. Shore, I see you looking at your watch. You're a veteran of such things. You know that we're about out of time. If I'd Thanks. Only, if I looked at my watch at 12:30. <laughs>
We're glad you didn't. This has been an hour of reality, and we thank you. Thank you.